0: Built around one of the finest carbon frames in the world, the Ultimate is the definition of a world class race bike, racking up win after win at the highest levels since its launch in 2004.
1: With the 2023 Ultimate, Canyon have engineered the perfect balance in a road race bike without compromises. It's more capable than ever of attacking the high mountains, going full gas on the flat, or sprinting for the win.
0: It features full cable integration wider tyre clearance than ever before and more pedal power by reinforcing the frame in key areas for increased stiffness and stability.
1: And the weight has been kept to a minimum with big frame aerodynamic improvements from Canyon's partnership with aero experts Swiss side, saving 10 watts, 45 kilometers an hour over the previous model. It's faster than ever before.
0: The new Canyon Ultimate is available now at canyon.com. That's canyon.com. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, James Spender, and with me this week is James Spender. How are you doing, James? Yeah, I am alright, thanks, mate. Where's Anthony? Well, uh, funny you should ask, James. Anthony is in Spain. Anthony is bike packing. Um, although I've got a sneaking suspicion that bike packing for Anthony basically means sticking a top tube bag on your bicycle and pedaling around the cafes of Drona, sipping coffee with your ex-pro buddies. But I don't know. I don't want to cast dispersions maybe Anthony's going to come back with a massive tash and a filthy roly smoking habit and then we'll all know that he's done bike packing properly so we shall see but anyway our guest this week is a fascinating chap from a fascinating field it is Nick Littlehales and he is a sleep coach um, now there are lots of sleep coaches out there but Nick is one who has worked at the sharpest of ends sleep coaching and ultimately kind of pioneered sleep coaching for use um, in the kind of like professional athlete field and one of his first great successes and frankly if this had be me I probably would have stopped here because does it get any bigger was with uh, Manchester United and uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's team of you know the, the successful teams um, a little bit of a Manchester United fan here the successful teams of the 2000s uh, and he even helped one of my all-time favorite players Um, Yeah, Gary Pallister. I mean, who's all-time favourite player is not Gary Pallister? Uh, To sleep better by dealing with a back problem through the medium of using a very specific mattress. And that type of thinking is something that he carried through into then working with Team Sky, which is probably where we might indirectly know him from as cycling fans. Because Nick pioneered the idea that you should take your own pillows, mattresses, um, duvets, sheets, on a grand tour with you, so that you can set them up in a hotel and familiarize a room to you so that you rest as a pro rider, you rest better. And we all know what happened from there. We all know what happened from 2012 onwards. Team Sky, then now, you know, now Ineos kind of changed the face of cycling and certainly put Britain on the map of cycling in the same breath as well. So, Nick's techniques are validated at the sharpest end, but they're also potentially applicable to us which is particularly what I wanted to ask him about. How can I sleep better? Um, And the answers actually are not quite what you might think. So let's get into this podcast. Um, But in the meantime, just also want to say we are the Cyclist Magazine podcast, but the clue is in the magazine. We are also Cyclist, the magazine. So do pick up your copies. There's another copy, uh, issue 132, just about to drop on shelves uh, at the end of next week um and if you'd like to subscribe then do go to cyclist.co.uk um and have a little gander there also i might have even written a few web stories maybe there's something in there you might want to read who knows anyway let's get into it now nick little the sleep coach nick little the sleep coach
1: welcome to the cyclist magazine podcast
2: Thanks very much, lads. Great to be here.
1: Uh, we're excited to dive into this because I know James had a recent temporary promotion in work and poor sleep was just etched all over his face on the conversations we had. So right. I know he's eager to unlock the the keys to everlasting use in this conversation here today. <laughs> we'll,
0: we'll have a go. Well, yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated by sleep. Do I, I I think that you can probably see that the sort of like process of time is still etched over my face. I'm not sure if I'm looking any better. gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking pretty fresh. Oh, cheers. Well, where, where are you joining us from, Nick? Um, yeah, a
2: place called West Bridgeford in Nottingham. In the UK, very nice.
0: And uh, you are for you know for people um, unfamiliar with your work, you've you've worked as a sleep coach for some incredibly big names, including Team Sky. So mm. I wonder where you kind of come in to the sleep game from. What drew you to sleep in the first place?
2: I think it's it's. Um, I was far more interested in sport at school than um, doing my exams and studying any sort of sport at all. You know, and um, I managed to get. To certain levels, uh, whether it be cricket, football, things like that. I ended up uh, working as an assistant golf professional at a local golf club. Um, I don't know how that happened. Mm. It was just trying to avoid, you know, proper work. Um, I think that particular journey, looking back at it, was extremely interesting because I was a very young person, 17, 18, and um, I was working at a golf club where there was a lot of, what you'd class as sort of like CEOs and doctors and dentists and all very, you know, accomplished people. So I think there was always this little thing about being involved independently in sport. I wanted to travel the world and do things, but sport was a very different sort of animal then. So I think there's always been a little bit of that in the background. I I was not successful enough. I ended up leaving golf and uh, marrying my childhood sweetheart. Um Her family business was in the furniture industry, so I had to sort of think about buying a house. Uh, Suddenly, we were having a a child, so I needed to pay the mortgage, you know? And um, I ended up applying for a job as an area sales representative for a company called Slumberland. They happened to be in the sleep industry per se. I got a car. uh, I got some freedom to travel around selling products, you know, to retailers and uh, so i kept my independence and i got some money to pay the bills that was it i had absolutely no interest in the furniture industry or sleep or anything else i think very quickly i sort of looked at this job i was doing and thought we should be able to do this better there's a lot of time wasting there's a lot of rules and regulations and we should be able to do this a lot better so i suppose the i think i remember one particular time where one of the members who asked for some lessons. Uh, We went down to the practice ground and he was hitting golf balls with his right-handed clubs. You know, during that period, everybody plays right-handed. You know, the amount of left-handed golfers back in those days was sort of, you could count them on, you know, one hand. So I spotted something and basically I changed him around and he started playing left-handed. And that changed the way he approached golf. So there was a number of things that was challenging. One, was he happy to play golf left-handed when everybody else at the club played right-handed? It sort of made him a bit isolated. He, he had to stand in different places, and, but he was far more attuned to doing it that way. So I think when I went into this furniture industry, I had that sort of look at, why are we doing it like that when there's clear evidence we should be doing it like this? So I very quickly became their international sales and marketing director. Because I was ahead of a big brand internationally, you were expected to innovate and move the industry forward. So I travelled around the world. We had licensees all over the world, and I bumped into professors of sleep and scientists and all sorts of things. And I suppose I just gathered all of this stuff together and thought, we should be doing this left-handed. Why are we all doing it right-handed? So we set up the first UK Sleep Council with a couple of collaborative partners, there was no organisation representing sleep sort of in the UK or the world. I was the chairman of that for a while. And then I suppose, you know, midlife crisis creeps in. You hit your 40s, you realise where your life's gone. I've got a family, I've got this and I've got that. And and I think I just decided, you know, I want to go off and do something completely different. So um, my office was in Oldham, Manchester. A local football club called Oldham Athletic at the time had had a reasonable amount of success. They knocked on my door because I was the... The guy at this big company uh, who had some money. So I ended up writing a check out in those days, guys. You did write a check. To sponsor the olden athletic shirts. What then happened, because I was the guy who wrote the check out, I got invited to some local football things. And what I didn't realise at the time was around that area was the breeding ground for a football club called Manchester United. So I ended up bumping into Alex Ferguson and... We ended up having a conversation over a glass of wine, probably at a football club somewhere. And so I just, you know, had a conversation about some of the things I thought around sleep. And the thing was is that sleep's that big chunk of everybody's day. Uh, The football club at the time had all of these sort of things going on, but nobody was looking at what was happening when the player wasn't with the club. That, I suppose, if it was any other football club, any other manager... On the planet at that time, that conversation would have just died right there and then. But he became fascinated by what are we doing around this area where the players aren't with us.
1: Nick, just to, just to jump in there, so like I'm absolutely fascinated with the flow of information so so much of what you're talking about is the golf pros into pro soccer players mm-hmm. but i often find that it takes a long time before that information actually trickles down to the public and i know me and james have spoke about this a lot what's brilliant about this podcast platform is we almost get to democratize that information yeah. and the listeners right now they're listening they haven't given much thought to sleep. You know, there's been a, yeah. a culture of kind of, you know, influencers online, Gary Vanderchuk, you sleep when you're dead. Yeah. But how detrimental is less than optimum sleep or maybe define what poor sleep is and then how detrimental is it to, you know, not just athletes, but everyone listening to this podcast?
2: Uh, that's a, a big question um, because that sort of, that journey over two decades, it's only really sort of now that people are really focused on that particular area and looking for ways to optimise their recovery. So it's, it's taken a long time and quite a lot of challenges to get to that particular point. So the thing is, is we know, and we continue to find out through uh, developments and research, that our whole functionality as human beings is focused around the ability to recover. And that ability to recover is pretty much dominated by our brains, right? So it's kind of trying to shift the emphasis away from your behaviour and everything you're trying to achieve and constantly trying to develop things and your relationship with yourself as a human being and a brain and bodily functions and some things that will never change. So I think the the thing that everybody needs to realise is that You can continue to allocate some time to to sleep and recovery. You can get through your day and meet most of the challenges that you want. But there are some really detrimental consequences. And some people, like you mentioned, there's lots of people around who will tell you, you know, if you don't get your six hours, you know, you're going to die. If you don't get a full eight hours sleep you're not going to be able to function. You will have long-term consequences of Parkinson's and dementia and all sorts of things, Alzheimer's and everything else. And it's kind of trying to remove the fear factor from how am I doing this? What am I trying to do every day to make this really beneficial? And just constantly creating things in your life that makes it even worse. And I think there's a lot more people now understanding that you can actually be far more productive. You can achieve so much more if you focus on putting sleep. And let's change the perception of that. But to put it in this context, changing your relationship with sleep to it's a human recovery performance tool. It is is everything you try and do. So what we, what I think we've been trying to do over the years, and certainly in recent years, uh, years is to actually try to put this as the first health pillar right rather than something that's tagged on at the back so we're really focused on nutrition and psychology and training and equipment and all that sort of stuff and pushing the boundaries of human performance and then we sort of sleep at the end of it and said, so, well actually if you want to optimize all of those things that you're doing you really have to look at how you can optimize your sleep in the first sense and the first place you do is to change your perception of that is to not look at it as an eight hour block in any 24 hours not look at it as if you're only going to get this is is understand that there are some key factors that if you have those in your recovery rhythm of every 24 hours rolling those things will help the brain to then when you allocate recovery time like sleep and you let yourself go into a sleep state, the brain takes over and tries to give you the best quality it possibly can. And that's that little understanding that's the first step to, nobody's going to argue about the level of recovery you need in 24 hours, right? It's basically 30% of the 24 hours. That's where the eight comes from. But it's also this polyphasic sleeping approach that up until the, 1930s before we invented electric light as human beings we never even tried to sleep in one block so it's a kind of it's that little sort of change of perception to say yes you need a level of recovery in every 24 hours it doesn't need to look like one block at night it can look a little bit differently not making it up but just change your attitude to what recovery means and for a long period of time this sort of monophasic sleep, we've got away with it, right? Chucking it all into one area nocturnally. We've got away with it, but we haven't been educating people in schools and parents haven't been passing it on and neither as coaches. So it's kind of like we shifted it there. We've been continued to take it for granted. And then suddenly we introduce daylight saving time. We introduce technology. We introduce 24-7. We keep introducing different type of eating habits, different this, relationships to stuff. We keep changing those things, but it's not based on the premise that if you don't optimise the way that you recover, a lot of those things are going to be far more counterproductive than you would imagine. So I don't want to create fear for people. That's what a lot of people do. You know, you read a lot of this stuff, don't you, Anthony? You, know, you read it then and it's going, oh, my God, if you don't do this and you don't do that... Bedrooms have got to be this temperature, you've got to do this, and don't eat too late, and if you don't get eight hours and only get six, that's... And you say, well, a lot of that just falls on deaf ears, you know, because you can't really apply all those things. So you look for a really natural approach, and when you start to get there, suddenly, I suppose one of the things that we realised when you mentioned you know, Team Sky and and around that particular period with London 2012 and British Cycling Track and Road and everybody else, such a demanding set of sport that suddenly we realised that everybody was probably at the peak of their performance, there was still just a shadow of what they could actually be. And that's because that recovery era had never been looked at before in that sense. And that's when we started to see at that elite level that there was another 1%, there was another 2%, there was another 3% that you could get out of somebody over a long period of time like a Grand Tour or over a period of an Olympic Games because we'd focused on the recovery element as much as everything else that they were focused on.
0: Yeah, that is something that is often bandied around as a kind of... um... Bit of an adage in cycling, isn't it? You know, the person that wins the Grand Tour is the person that rests best or the person that recovers best because it is just that grind. So, but I'm wondering, it's very different, isn't it, for the average person who's going, You know, as you're talking at the top of the conversation, about a CEO who is locked into one long chunk of time at work and then mm. gets a smaller chunk of time for rest and recuperation. That's kind of situation A, for our sleeping, which I think you described as monophasic sleep. But if you're with a professional athlete who in a certain sense mm-hmm. has all the time in the world, how would you tell someone with that amount of time to rest best? Is it the biphasic, the polyphasic sleeping? So what what would a kind of sleep schedule be, for example, that you would give to someone that you wanted to win a grand tour? Uh, a grand tour rather than the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think what you you
2: start with, you start to, you know, use technology and data collection to to identify certain data points uh, are key, not just overloading yourself with loads of data. So you start to look at things, maybe uh, a training program um, that may last 60 minutes and it's all set up. Uh, it might be cardiovascular, it might be all sorts of things. So you set that up and this is what we try and do. And we're looking for data in there that indicates that that person is creating that level of data, the things that we're looking for in a 60-minute period. Then you start to go, well, if we gave them, using example, a five-minute vacant mind space prior to that 60 minutes and almost maybe stop halfway through for a little tiny two-minute break. Now, a lot of people listening to this, you can't do that, but I'm just giving you an example, right? And then you sort of think, well, rather than doing that little five-minute vacant mind space before the 60-minute session, let's do it part of the 60-minute session, right? So we're not prolonging this. So it's kind of like, do you see better results from a 55-minute session with a five-minute vacant mind space as part of it, right? Not before it, not after it, not during it, but actually part of the 60-minute session. And it's like that. You start to think of that for you to be as productive as you want to be mentally and physically is that those little recovery moments, those little moments where you and your brain can just, like, reset, change certain things. We all know if we look out, out into the garden, suddenly that visualisation changes our emotions to, to calm and chilled out. And if we're constantly looking at you guys on a podcast for an hour, you know, that's what I'm creating as an emotion. I'm getting a bit anxious, I'm getting a bit stressful, I'm getting a bit hyper. You know what I mean? So it's kind of starting to look at it as, as the, the real preparation tool to be able to get more out of what you're doing rather than looking at it as a as almost like a waste of valuable time. You know, so the elite athletes would say to me, can we come up with a technique where I can only sleep for 20 minutes a day and the rest of the time I can spend more time on the bike, more time training and more time making myself a better athlete. So you have to shift that mindset around that it's not a waste of time. And You do that by showing somebody and it does apply to, to CEOs. It's kind of one thing I suppose cropped up recently may not be relevant. It was a top CEO of a big a big organization who wanted to change the mindset of that organization and, and basically gave them all the mindset of cut the crap and create some space. So it's like in everything we do, there is plenty of time for recovery. It's just we don't we don't put it in a place where it's important. And as soon as you do, suddenly we've actually I suppose it's not slowing somebody down, guys, but it's like it's a bit that tortoise and hare type of mindset. It's, it's, it's if you can get them to just sit on the floor by the bike and create some vacant mind space before they get on it and do it, and then they see that not only did they create the same level of data, but the following session created the same level of data. And the following session created the same level of data. And that's when you start to see that even, might sound a bit strange, but even inside a peloton on a grand tour, you can have a nap, right? If you change what a nap means, it sounds dangerous, doesn't it? But it sounds like, but that that for anybody who knows what that world's about, is if you're inside that peloton being protected, from all those elements and everything else. You're you're being protected by the team to be able to deliver certain things at certain levels, maybe in a five-hour trek that day. So it's kind of, is that actually a vacant mind space? Is that actually recovery? Let's look at it like that. Because if we can introduce that type of thought into everything we do, we're gonna get better.
0: Built around one of the finest carbon frames in the world, the Ultimate is the definition of a world-class race bike, racking up win after win at the highest levels since its launch in 2004.
1: With the 2023 Ultimate, Canyon have engineered the perfect balance in a road race bike without compromises. It's more capable than ever of attacking the high mountains, going full gas on the flat or sprinting for the win.
0: It features full cable integration, wider tyre clearance than ever before and more pedal power by reinforcing the frame in key areas for increased stiffness and stability.
1: And the weight has been kept to a minimum with big frame aerodynamic improvements from Canyon's partnership with aero experts Swiss side, saving 10 watts, 45 kilometers an hour over the previous model. It's faster than ever before.
0: The new Canyon Ultimate is available now at canyon.com. That's canyon.com.
1: Nick, just to jump in and to sort of go a level deeper on James's question. So vacant mind space is one of those tools you would use for an athlete, given optimum circumstances and they've nothing to do all day, only focus on their performance. But Would you set it up where you're building naps into their day at increments? And if so, how long would a nap be and how many hours sleep that night? So you know, what's the distribution of vacant mind space to naps to the big block of sleep?
2: So the one thing that became apparent to me is that um, if you're in a clinical environment, so we're looking at, you know, how important is, is sleep and how do we try and redefine it? If you're in a clinical environment, it's all about taking brainwave patterns off the frontal lobe of your brain. And these brainwave patterns are explored in a 90-minute period. Right? And then you'd look at the next 90-minute period to see how your brain is exploring these various stages of sleep, which are all important. But the deeper sleep stages are the ones we go hunting for when you become sort of almost paralyzed and and your brain is really repairing everything about you. So there's where you start. Then you know within any 24 hours that in a natural circadian rhythm as a human being with the sun going around our planet between around 10 o'clock at night and 2 a.m. in the morning is when your brain is most likely to go hunting for those deep sleep stages, right? in that period of time. So then when you look at getting your eight hours, going to sleep at 10 o'clock, waking up in the morning, you start to realize that what your target is is to try and help you get to a place where you can reveal that deep sleep with your brain in that period of time, okay? It's either before 12, after 12, in that area. And if you think of cycles, then suddenly you start to redefine it. And this is where we go with the elite athlete. And I've been doing this for a long time, but it takes a while to change somebody's mindset. So what we do is we pick their most consistent start to their day, their wait time, their chronotype, They're a morning or nighttime person. You know, where do we find that? We find a consistent point to the day, okay, which is a bit like sunrise, but we don't have control of that with seasons depending on where we are. So it's kind of like let's have a consistent start to the break because the brain loves that. Let's chop the day up into 90-minute cycles, because that gives us a relationship with this recovery element. That gives us 16 phases in the day, right? So if I pick 6.30 as my consistent start to my day, because I'm a morning chronotype, okay? I then go 90-minute cycles. So 6.30 into 8 o'clock into 9.30. And if I go all the way around, then that means if I want five 90-minute cycles, which is 7.5 hours, 15 in and 15 out gives you the eight. If I want five 90-minute cycles focused on monophasic sleeping nocturnally at night, it would be between 11 and 6.30. And then I know that what I'm trying to do with my brain from the moment I wake in the morning is have a consistent start to my day, which is all about loads of light, hydrating, bowel and bladder, mental challenges, serotonin, adrenaline and cortisone little kicks, From blue light in daylight, I get a really good start to my day as if I was outside with the sun. I then look at little tiny moments every 90 minutes, little controlled recovery periods, I call them, rather than naps. Just a little couple of minutes every 90 minutes where you just drop out and those all add up. You can then think, well, I'm focusing on the first two cycles of my sleep. So between 11 and 12.30 is where my brain's going to try and hunt for that deep sleep. And then between 12:30 and 2, it's going to hunt for it again. Now, if we can get some of that balance, what we know from all the trackers, and we've known it for a long time, from around two, three o'clock in the morning, deep sleep is not there, right? Your brain doesn't go looking at it because it's getting ready to wake you up again. So my wake cycle is between 5 and 6:30, right? That's my consistent wake cycle. I will wake between five and 6.30, hopefully closer towards 6.30. Consistent start to my day at 6.30 and off I go. So I stop worrying about how well I've slept. What I'm worrying about is keeping some nice flow to my day. And quickly to finish that, if I have to deal with planes and trains and events and all sorts of things and you know birthday parties and all that sort of stuff, what we know is that sleep time can shift. But what I'm doing it now is within a framework. So I can actually then choose that the way I optimise that particular period is to not try and sleep between 11 and 6.30 of five 90-minute cycles and 7.5 hours. What works for me better is to take the pressure off the phase three into sort of midnight and choose 12.30 as a targeted sleep time. Then that focuses on four cycles and six hours into 6.30, with my little CRPs, every sort of 90 minutes without being too specific, they add up to helping me in my brain. You know, just looking out the window, stepping outside, doing something. But then I also use the the polyphasic approach to go 30% of a 90-minute cycle is 30 minutes. We've all heard about naps, 26 minutes and all that sort of stuff, snoozes for losers. But well, what I do because I'm a morning chronotype is I don't want to be going to sleep at 8 o'clock at night. Right, and the PM has are up till 12. I want to live in a 24-hour world, right? So if I have a little 30-minute period of complete vacant mind space, late afternoon, in that polyphasic thought process, and I just do certain things, not even trying to sleep, right, in that sense. But if I allocate that moment there, it takes all the pressure off the next cycles into 12:30. I've got more time to do things I want to do unrushed. It means then I'm likely to go into a sleep state. The brain will take over, grab the deep sleep, no awakenings, no going to the bathroom, start my day again. So it starts to give you some recovery rhythm, right? And it starts to change how you think about it. And people get the mindset then that I'm actually doing something about this and it's not just, wow, there's only so many
0: hours before I've got to go and do this again, so I need to go and get some sleep. That's a really interesting word to use is rhythm, which I've heard yeah. used in connection with sleep a lot, and also you know, as athletes with training. How important is rhythm? So a, a while ago, I did a kind of sleep psychology course is a bit of a grand word, but did some stuff for, um, for Cyclist Mag and spoke to some sleep psychologists. And the takeaway um, was that you can't bank sleep and that you're best served getting up at the same time every morning. So there's no sense in sleeping in till 10.30 on a Saturday mm-hmm. because you've burnt the candle at both ends with work and everything else during the week because you can't bank it for the following week and neither can you kind of pay off a debt in that way. Is there a truth to that? What do you, what do you think about a lion, for example, versus a consistent 6.30 or 8 a.m. wake up? And it's always with these types of questions, which is a great set of questions to be having after
2: 20-odd years, trying to have conversations with people about things like that. What you do is once you get that little defined approach, okay, because there's nothing perfect in this area, right? It's about trying to create that rhythm. It's trying to think there's nothing about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday. It is all about 365. It's a rolling 24-hour process. Our relationship with that process, the sun going around the planet and light, dark and temperature shifts and our own internal circadian rhythms and clocks and that, all of that should be more synchronised to make you function at your best. So the rhythm is try and create as much rhythm with that process and what it means as possible enables your brain to reveal that level of recovery that you probably hardly ever get. (laughs) because it's such a random approach. So it's like, whoa, if I could get that every 24 hours, then my performance levels, both mentally and physical, are going to go through the roof. So you stop thinking, because you can't smash it for three or four days and then try and catch up by sleeping in hours because it shifts the clock, you know? So it's that the sun still came up, (laughs) irrespective of what you've been doing, right? So just because you you try and sleep in later, you know, and then start your day later or try to catch up on sleep at weekends and change the time you get out of bed. So you might wake up at the same time on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning or whatever day, but then you hang around trying to snooze and catch up and things like that. And a lot of people will maybe take the opportunity to have a nap on a day off or something like that, mid-afternoon, after lunch, <laughs> add a bite to eat, you know, put the gaming on on the, on the telly, on the sofa, and then pass out for a bit, you know? Uh, so it's kind of all of the sort of indications are there to how you create that rhythm. I think that sort of technique of just thinking, you know, I don't care how well I slept last night. It's irrelevant, right? Because... It's always been irrelevant because I'm still going to go on and do what I'm going to do, right? Kids to school, go on a bike ride, go to work. All of those things are still going to happen. So put that to one side and let's go right. The big one is loads of light and particularly blue light, right? Triggering serotonin. For the PMers, they need this like mad because they want to get their appetites up, bowel and, you know, bladders normally easy, but bowel and things like that. And you need to get that started rather than delayed you know, having breakfast later or fueling up later. So it really gives a nice focus for both of those groups of how we start that day. And then you know for a fact, once you start to experience it, you know, this particular podcast, you know, you suddenly start to feel what 90 minutes feels like. You don't need a wristband going off or a device going off. But I know that you start moving into a 60-minute period. So it's a bit like what internally becomes part of Everybody I coach is that I'm quite happy to say to you, I just need to go to the toilet, guys. Can you give me a couple of minutes? right? And then what happens is you don't say, no, you can't, Nick. But right? even if this was live, right? nobody's going to stop you doing that. So I'm just using an exaggerated point. I would then just walk away from this laptop. I would maybe go into the kitchen, look out the window where I know there's like 80,000 locks out there and loads of blue light that's going to create serotonin for me really quickly. I then come back in and know for a fact that the next section of this workshop, this podcast, this meeting, this training program, whatever it might be, is going to be optimised better than if I just kept going, right? Just kept going, it's just going to not be as productive. So it becomes... The way the athlete then starts to look at it is it becomes a really natural process to create these little moments in everything you're doing because what you're doing is protecting yourself and your own personal performance rather than just moving along randomly expecting it to all work and that's when the biggest disruptor to sleep guys is worrying about it right and We open this podcast up with you worrying about your sleep and your new job and your this, right? So immediately what you get is you just stop worrying about sleep because you've changed your perception. What you focus on is this is what I do in the first 90 minutes. I try to do that there, I try to do that there. That little 30 minutes for me late afternoon is the best thing I could ever do for myself and for everybody else around me, including what I'm trying to achieve. Then that happens and that happens. Then suddenly you start thinking, am I sleeping less or am I actually getting more recovery? Am I optimising that nocturnal period? What happens if I get back at 2 o'clock in the morning? Do I start thinking, oh, my God, I haven't got my... No, because you can see this coming. So the way the coaches and everybody around them, everybody around them can start going, let's have a look at the next seven days and let's apply this to that process. And so we can start going, right, 20 minutes midday. We've got the 30 minute in there for the AMA. We've got that, we've got that, we've got that. We're not getting back till 2 o'clock there, so we're only going to get two cycles in. So we'll tell everybody, don't just jump into bed and brush your teeth. Just have a little bit of space and go for two cycles into 6.30. Let's do that again. Let's do that there. We'll create a little space midday so you can do a 20 minute vacant mind space, as well as the 30-minute one we're going to do. Bam, bam, bam. And then we go into this and come out of it. So your answer to catching up and sleep debt is we're not losing sleep. We're just saying, if you looked at any seven-day period, just saying, I've got to get my eight hours. And most people don't get eight hours when they're asleep and the quality of it. When you just shift that around and go, ah, right then. What we're trying to achieve over the next seven days, in that for the rest of the year, as we move around the world, doing tours and cycling things and everything else, is we want 35 cycles in a week.
1: So Nick, is there areas, like you are mentioning, uh, James, worrying about sleep, is a sleep disruptor? And I know with Team Ineos or Team uh-huh. Sky, it's hard to believe what's fact and what's actually fiction. But for a long time, uh-huh. we were led to believe they were bringing their own pillows, they were bringing their own mattresses is there a way you can create an optimum environment for sleep at home? And I'm kind of thinking rather than, you know, an exhaustive list of things that people probably won't buy, kind of what's the Pareto principle? Like what's the 20% of stuff that's going to give 80% of returns for people?
2: Um, I was the guy who kickstarted that with Sky a long time ago (laughs) and British Cycling. So we, we literally just very quickly went from the point like, you know, in the aggregation of marginal gains, everybody's looking at this. We need to look at that. So we ended up sort of, what are the little key factors inside that rider's world in their own home, right, and where they were born? And there's all sorts of sensory stuff, visualisation stuff, there's mattresses, there's pillows, there's partners, there's temperature, uh, there's postcodes, there's all sorts of things, right? So the first time we go, what are those little things, right, to keep it simple, what are those little things that creates familiarisation, which is a big key factor? So when you present yourself to sleep your brain's going where are we what are we doing what are we doing tomorrow noises sounds smells so what we did is try to say "Well, well we can't make hotels all around the world the same as somebody's home we need to have to create a recovery environment that can happen anywhere like up the side of a mountain in a sack or in a hotel all over the world or in this type of hotel we don't even know who's come through the door and slept in that hotel yesterday so this is like, how are you, how how am I going to take these guys to sleep in that room, when we don't know who was in there before? Now, so the thing is, is we were teaching them how to wash their hands, which sounds completely bizarre in 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 modern time, but that was to make sure that when we go into an environment, that we know it's it's clean. There isn't things knocking around that might come out in the next three or four days on a tour at all sorts of level, viruses and things like that. So you, you start to think cleanliness, you think about temperature, you think about noise, you think about visualization, you think about how do you get somebody to to not worry about that environment that they're in. And you give them little tools. So we would, you know, bring your partner's, you know, deodorant or their perfume or the smell of the bed linen, bring it into the hotel so we can very quickly familiarise it for that rider. So they sort of, oh, that smells nice, or that looks nice. What about something in their ears? Uh, Maybe it's them reading a bedtime story to to their kids at home. And and suddenly they just pop that on and they just disappear from where they are and they shift. So there's lots of little things. It could be a pillow, it could be a pillowcase. Obviously what happened, we ended up creating sleep kits for every single rider and taking them all the way across the tour. So we took completely that out. But if you, in your own little world, there are little things going into a sleep state, normally means, you know, a bedroom. It normally means a very private space. It normally means lots of private things go on in that space. And we, we just tried to recognize what little things were really key to that individual and their sleeping and how they were with their chronotypes and everything else, and then how can we try and replicate that as much as possible wherever they are, because you can sleep anywhere, anytime, in any place. It's just knowing what are the little factors that will help your brain do that, whether you're up the side of a mountain or you're on a race across America on a bike for 13 days and just hopping off the bike, curling up, taking 20 minutes and jumping back on the bike again and going, you know. So you create that sort of thing. And I think when you get into that personal space, that's why it's quite intrusive for a lot of people, right? You can call yourself a sleep coach. You can be a scientist in sleep and everything else. But this is an area which is normally really private to any individual, right? And it's a place, sometimes it's their only solitude, right? Because outside of that bedroom... The world's just going mad right so it's a place where they want to feel nobody can get in there without their authority it's a completely exclusive place to them it's a place where they can do things not just about sleeping it's about recovering so we take the whole emphasis off just because it's called a hotel room and it's got a bed and a bedroom in it this is your recovery space right And how can we maximise that over this next period of time to make sure you come out of it with your recovery optimised as best you can? So we'd even move a bed from one side of the room to another because at home, (laughs) you know, James and Anthony, we noticed at home that there's their bed in the bedroom, you know, there's the bedside cabs and the bits and bobs, and they sleep on this side of the bed facing the door, not the window. So you walk into a hotel room and you want to sleep on that side of the bed, but it's facing the window, then what you're doing is asking your brain to, why are we facing the window? (laughs) And while you're trying to roll through all these wonderful stages of sleep, your brain's just going, what are we doing? What are we doing? It can never really stop because it's not comfortable because of things like that. So it's just the most ridiculous little things when you look at it compared to so many others. But this is a massive chunk of your day.
0: Yeah, so this is the thing. I'm I'm so aware. I know that you said you shouldn't worry about sleep because that's the most detrimental thing to getting a good night's sleep. And I'm to- well, you know what I mean. He's- no, no, no. I'm totally I'm totally on board with that. I really, really get that. And I don't want to toot my own trumpet about my sleep setup. But one thing. But you're going. To. I'm going to. <laughs> but one. Yeah, one thing at home because I've just been on holiday mm-hmm. um, for you know, sleeping in different places for the last ten days, which has been great. But the sleep has not been good. Coming home. I really do feel that difference. Like you just said, like it's the familiarity, it's great. I've got the temperature dialed, you know, I feel like anyway, You know, the, the sheets feel mm. familiar. There's space enough for me and my partner in bed to roll around. Well, yeah, it's all no. it's all perfect. My problem mm. isn't going to sleep. And my problem my problem is staying asleep. So I find mm. it very easy to drop off. And even on holiday I did too. But what is routinely happening to me at the moment is let's call it about 3 a.m. I don't know if it's just, mm. I'm trying not to look at the alarm clock because again, I don't want to kind of wake up and go, okay, I'm really cognizant of the time. But it coincides, I wake up, I need a wee, go to the toilet, come back, and then like last night, just lie in bed and my brain is just on and I can't turn it off. What do I do about that? Should I just get up and, and crack on or am I doing something wrong in the lead up to sleep? Exactly that's right? Which we've actually, we've done that bit,
2: you know? Because you know that around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, it's very easy for your brain to trigger out of sleep because actually it stopped looking for deep sleep and now you're into the wake cycles, right? So it's like five 90-minute cycles, 7.5 hours. So number one cycle, looking for deep sleep. Second cycle, looking for deep sleep. Now you're in 2 o'clock time. Then the next one into 3.30. Next one's into 5 and then 6.30. So you know that what's happening is you've been triggered out of sleep. You went into sleep quickly, okay? Uh, Sometimes that's because you're overtired, but also because, you know, that's okay. So you go into sleep quickly. You've gone through those first two cycles, right? You may well have, you know, revealed it's only 20% of any period, whether it's eight hours or 90 minutes. So you may have revealed some deep sleep and some recovery, Then your bladder's going, hang on a minute, right? We're in this cycle now where noises, partners, things can just shift us out of that sleep because the brain's getting ready to wake us up because of that natural circadian rhythm. So your bladder's filling, and then suddenly that starts to become a habit. So you get to that particular cycle, the bladder's filling up, so it is there. Maybe you could go on another cycle or two but you reach that particular point. And when you do that, you're then sat there in a polyphasic manner before electric light in a period where you're perfectly happy to be active because that's tap it in your browser, polyphasic sleeping. There's four major sleep-wake cycles up until that period of time. Not one of them was monophasic, triphasic, biphasic, multiphasic, crazy phasic. You apply the crazy phasic to people who sail around the world for three months. They can only sleep at certain times. Uh, certain things apply to parents, you know, with kids and stuff like that. And night shift workers and multi-shift workers. So you use those little things to make it different. So what you would do is you, as you said, you look at the first 90 minutes of your day. Right? You look at the second 90 minutes, the third 90 minutes, you look through your all, and maybe. You can look at diet. You can look at behavior. And you know that little 30-minute cycle I mentioned for me? What I don't want to be doing is waking up and going to the toilet and breaking that process. So if I take the pressure off the evening a bit with that 30-minute cycle, that nobody needs to know what I'm doing, right? They wouldn't even know I was doing it, okay? But that gives more opportunity to digest foods, to process fluids, to process thoughts to get everything off your desk, to create a bit of space you know, for yourself before you enter sleep, right? And then that helps the brain wander through that process without those little triggers, right? And that's how you use that sort of dial of the consistent wake time, 90-minute cycles, 16 cycles. You get a relationship with that. And then your target for you, James, is to actually maybe think about targeting a later sleep time Right, Because you know you're falling to sleep quickly. right? You know you might feel tired at a certain point and think, well, I need to get all my sleep. But for you, what you want to do is target a later sleep time within that framework. Don't make it up. So if you and I were 6.30, we'd go, let's shift it from you go to sleep at 11 o'clock quickly, but then you wake in that third cycle and you can't get back to sleep. Right? So what we do is shift that to 12.30 and look at four cycles and see if we can get you through to the fourth or fifth cycle before that week. We even shift you to two o'clock. It sounds a bit crazy, but when you're looking at it, you start to change certain things, right? So normally you do that in the evening. I, re- I say to you, well, on Tuesday, we're going for a bike ride and we're starting at eight o'clock at night. right? So if you have a little 20-minute Earlier on, you could meet me and we'll go for a bike ride and we'll get back at 10 o'clock at night, right? And we'll do 100 kilometres. And you go, well, I don't normally do that. I'm normally cooking tea and doing all sorts of stuff and getting ready for bed. Well, let's shift that a little bit. It's called sleep restriction. Sounds a bit dangerous. But what we do is at the moment you go sleep, a couple of cycles, wake, be awake, worrying about why you're awake and you can't get back to sleep. And then suddenly you've got to start your day again. And that follows you all the way around to the next one and the next one and the next one that you know you're going to fall asleep at 11 and wake up at 2 and you can't get back to sleep. So we shift it. You have to have a framework. You can't just make this up, right? Because what you mentioned before, it's rhythm, right? Start the day, rhythm. What we do there, what we do there, what we do there. Make a little shift. Change you to 12.30 and see if you can get through That doesn't work, we shift you to 2 o'clock and restrict it. As long as we do that and that and that the following day, you keep rolling, right? And then suddenly you'll find yourself going through, we move it back to 12.30, and you may even stay there because it makes more sense for you looking like that. Or we might go back to 11, right? I hope that sort of gives you some idea, is you actually know what's going on. If you have something in front of you that goes 11, 12.30, 2, 3.30, Four, you know, five, six thirty, eight o'clock. You've got something in front of you. you. Just go. Let's just shift it and reset it. Don't sleep in. Don't worry about it. We'll just shift it and then wander back because you can actually. Uh, I think it was Steve Redgrave a long time ago. Anybody knows him? A few gold medals. Would never try to sleep before certain things were going to impact on him because of the higher levels of excitement, adrenaline, and cortisol made it more difficult. So it's kind of like counterproductive. Do other recovery things. So Chris Hoy, before final events at Olympics and things like that, we wouldn't even try to sleep. We'd sort of ignore the fact that we're in a bedroom and just use other good recovery processes, like looking at every time he was really successful, creating a good positive thing rather than trying to sleep. We all know that if we didn't sleep at all that well that night, we're still going to go out and smash it the following day. We experience those moments. So it's bringing all of that together and going, that's a pressurized moment. Let's do it like that. Take the emphasis off trying to get to sleep. Let's do other things that's more important running into that. We'll just get two cycles, crack on, start the day, do that and that and that, hit that event, do it, come back, and then roll back into a slightly normal 35-cycle process.
1: Nick it's a fascinating insight and like that we're at the end of our 60 minute podcast cycle <laughs> I'm not sure if you've, uh, if all the listeners have got a benefit out of this but I know uh, you've definitely sort of rehabbed James's uh, sleep work relationship so thanks very much for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast.
0: That's very kind of you thanks very much. Thanks a lot Nick. So Nick Littlehales there ladies and gentlemen um really really interesting bloke loads to unpack The sort of podcast that I sort of feel I need to listen to again, not just in the editing stages, but just as a fan, and probably even twice, just to really sort of get to grips with a lot of stuff that Nick was saying there, because it's quite a dense topic, is sleep. So I would suggest doing a bit of reading around it if you are interested, particularly Googling Nick Littlehale's R90 technique, which is what Nick was touching upon there, which is this idea of sleeping in 90-minute blocks. Or treating sleep as a series of 90 minute blocks, not that you should wake up every 90 minutes, but looking at sleep in a different kind of way. It's that sort of model that he has um, helped apply to a lot of pro athletes' training regimes and gotten, yeah, basically got them to rest better. And rest has a massive effect on performance and also mood. So that's something that we can all kind of take away from there. But, you know, frankly, I could, if I was, I think that Nick's almost onto a winner just by being Nick. If he walked into a, kind of consultation room sat down with me and I was having a bad day I reckon he could talk me around he's got a great storybook voice um and a very warm kind of demeanor and I feel that maybe maybe that's just his trick he just makes you feel valued and don't we all just want to feel valued in life yes we do um I'm kind of gonna leave it there really I feel valued through the medium of this podcast because you have listened to it all the way to the end um if you're listening to this now so thank you very much um, and if you haven't listened this far that's totally fine because you were waiting for Anthony to come back anyway, which he will next week. So Anthony, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're riding safe, mate. And I look forward to seeing you again uh, in a couple of days. Ciao, ciao.